To be or not to be? That is the question. To roll a d20 or not to roll a d20? That is also the question. Whether it is nobler to throw a million dice at the table and hope that one of them comes out a critical hit, or to suffer the slings and arrows of your PCs as they laugh at the cocky DM for getting a million critical failures. Aye, but therein lies the rub, for if I jack the stats of even one of these little goblins so as to make him a level 20 toughy, and he manages to take down even one of these gorillas out, how shocking would it thus be for them, and how lulzy would it be for me, that same DM, and yet tis but a dream that already quickly fades. To roll a d20 or not to roll a d20? That is the question. Actually, unless you have one of those little things that help keeps the dice on the table, the answer is absolutely not to roll a d20. Really, just use one of those die apps. Yeah, it's not traditional, but dang, are they useful. I cannot tell you how many dice I've had roll under the couch only to never be seen again. Just, just use them. Trust me on this one. Hmm? Oh, yeah, the William Shakespeare build. Yeah, we're building William Shakespeare today on Heroes and History. Episode 3 of Heroes and History. Hello there everyone, welcome to Heroes in History, where we bring history to your character sheet. In this episode, we look at the greatest writer in the English language, William Shakespeare, and see how we can build him as a bard in D&D. It's episode 3 of Heroes and History. Hello there everyone, welcome to episode 3 of Heroes and History. I'm your host, Punk Rock AJ, and guys, it's a little dreary here in NorCal. You know? Yeah, it's a little rainy, but that's a-okay with me. Why? Well, for one thing, our summers here are way, way too hot, so we'll we'll take all the rain we can get, thank you very much. But also, I'm just one of those people who enjoys the mood and ambience that comes with rainy days. You know, I like to curl up with coffee, with tea, and get cozy with a good book. I'm currently kind of shuffling between books. I've got a Cuphead book because I'm a big Cuphead fan that I'm reading. I'm also reading Moby Dick for the first time and I love it. But now, also, I've been listening to some of Shakespeare's plays because that's actually who we're going to be building today in Heroes in History. Actually, I prefer to read Shakespeare to, than to listen to Shakespeare, but I digress. Yep, today we are going to be building one William Shakespeare as a bard in D&D. And since this is our first bard, Let's do a quick breakdown of that class. The word bard derives from the Celtic cultures and broadly describes wandering singer-songwriters such as scalds and minstrels and any other such character from history and myth, really from any culture as well. The class itself first appeared in the original D&D in 1976 and appears to have been a mainstay ever since. As a class, bards can cast magic and fight and have roguish elements. This makes them a jack-of-all-trades type of character, but more than that, they are an excellent support class who can boost the roles of other characters using their bardic inspiration ability. And while sometimes the butt of the joke at the gaming table for doing nothing but playing a lame song while everyone else cleaves dudes in half with gigantic battle axes, no one can deny that a skilled bard player is pretty dang handy to have when the time calls for it. And so that takes us back to the star of our show, one William Shakespeare, the famous English dramatist who lived from 
1564 to 1616, who himself was often called the Bard of Avon, or simply the Bard. How did he earn this nickname of Bard? Well, he earned it because of sheer volume and quality of output. In his life, Shakespeare wrote 39 English plays, 154 sonnets, all of which were masterworks of the English language. Speaking of which, Shakespeare would invent around 422 new English words, including bandit, critic, dauntless, dwindle, and so on. As an old high school English teacher had once wrote on the board, dang. But who was the super genius wordsmith? How is it that he is, his plays and stories are still performed today? Well, let's take a quick look and see if we can learn more about both him and the plays he wrote. So after doing the builds for both Da Vinci and Vlad Jepish, Vlad Dracula, I realized now that I like to get a sense of geography before really diving into one of these episodes, since I often need to familiarize myself with where exactly the story is taking place. But with Shakespeare, thankfully, that's not really quite the case. His life, as far as we know it, was based entirely around living in and out of London and his hometown of Stratford-upon-Avon, which is only a couple of days away from London, is, well only a couple of days away from London, so it's pretty close. <laughs> yes, there are some outdoor conspiracy theories that state that Shakespeare was able to visit Italy and even the New World, but those are most assuredly just theories. So, in regards to this aspect of Shakespeare's life, that part is pretty simple. It's not so simple as, well, everything else. In terms of direct sources, we actually know very little of who William Shakespeare, outside of his plays, really was. He lived during the reign of Queen Elizabeth I and what would soon become known as the Elizabethan era. And this period of history is often seen as the era of the English Renaissance, in short, an English Golden Age. Why? Well, during this time period, the internal wars England had between its Catholic and Protestant populations were largely put on hold, for a short time anyways. England had some of its most prominent explorers, such as Sir Francis Drake, make their journeys to the New World, and England wasn't really fighting any major wars with the other European powers as well, at least not until the end of the era. Now we should be absolutely careful when we use the term golden age, as no age is really worthy of such a term. The point being, though, is that this was a more stable time in English history, and thus this was the perfect time period for a figure like William Shakespeare to emerge. William Shakespeare was born in 1564. We know this because we have his baptismal record which shows that he was baptized on April 26, 1564. While his exact birthday is unknown, it is traditionally held as the 23rd of April, which is St. George's Day. This is the same St. George of St. George and the Dragon fame, and he is recognized as England's patron saint, so it would be extremely fitting if true. He was the third child of John Shakespeare, a glover, and Mary Arden, a local Catholic woman of some status. Given this fact, this was seen as a bit of a scandal at the time, though it was certainly a step up for John, who would eventually become the mayor of Stratford-upon-Avon. Due to this modest affluence, young William Shakespeare was fairly well educated in his local charter school, which would have consisted of a pretty intensive dive into classical Latin studies for a young schoolboy to take. So, you know, pretty boring stuff. <laughs> It's not until after he turned 18 that a few more facts emerge, specifically those concerning his marriage to Anne Hathaway. And before you ask, no, not that Anne Hathaway. Although I did look it up, and yes, our Anne Hathaway is apparently named after this woman. Neat. Not much is known about their marriage and personal life, and indeed it's been the subject of deep speculation. 
We do know that when they married, she was older, at 26, and apparently she was already pregnant with his child, their future daughter, Susanna Shakespeare. And yes, this was also just as much as a scandal back then as it would be today, I suppose. Extra documents from this time include a payment on behalf of the Hathaway family, assuring of the marriage. And this has led many to believe that this was what would charitably be called a shotgun wedding. People still argue to this day about whether Shakespeare and Hathaway's marriage was sincere. And despite the arrival of his daughter, Shakespeare would pretty quickly move to London, and so the family spent very few moments together. At the same time, he would make sure to come visit from time to time, and they did have other children, a pair of twins, Hamnet and Judith, though Hamnet would soon pass away, the age of 11, I believe. Shakespeare would make sure to send payments their way, so it may just be that, hey, he accidentally got her pregnant and didn't really feel like hanging out, but he made sure to still support them. Not the most noble of attitudes, but not quite the worst either. We'll come back to Shakespeare's love life a bit later. Anyways, after this marriage to Anne Hathaway, Shakespeare's life goes dark. Apart from a few apocryphal stories and possible legends, we know basically nothing about his life to the point where we have no definitive knowledge of when exactly he showed up in London. Suffice to say that he did, and that by 1592, several of his plays were being performed, the math showing that he would be about 28 years old. A critic at the time, fellow playwright Robert Greene, wrote this amazing critique, presumably against Shakespeare. There is an upstart crow, beautified with our feathers, that with his tiger's heart wrapped in a player's hide, supposes he is as well able to bombast out a blink first as the best of you, and being an absolute Johannes Factotum, is, in his own conceit, the only shake seen in a country. Wow, now that is some beautiful shade. And frankly, I wish we could bring shake scene back as an insult. I, I love it. I wish... <laughs> it's just it's just beautiful shade. Just mwah, beautiful. But the criticism doesn't seem to have bothered Shakespeare, who kept on trucking. Speaking of which, we don't know in what order Shakespeare's plays were written. We have some idea of his earlier works, and we can broadly guess at when the later plays were written, but no, we don't have any sort of definite knowledge as to the exact order. That said, there have been even further deeper classifications of his plays. On their site, the Royal Shakespeare Company lists that his plays can be divided into three major genres. Comedies, which includes A Midsummer's Night's Dream, Much Ado About Nothing. Tragedies, Hamlet, Macbeth, and Othello. And Histories, Henry V and um, all the other Henry plays. Apparently, this is sometimes referred to as the Henriad, which I think is a cool name. Anyways, okay, that's all well and good, but then there are some plays which fit into a few different categories. The Merchant of Venice is listed as a comedy, when one might argue that it is actually quite the tragedy. Similarly, Romeo and Juliet, as well as a few others, are some of the most well-known romances in all of history, so shouldn't a romance be also be its own classification? Eh. Yeah, this is, this is the sort of nitty-gritty that English geeks love to fret about. However, considering how much Shakespeare contributed to modern vernacular, this is absolutely important to understand. But what really, you know, grabbed my attention, just because it's such an enticing concept, it's an enticing idea, was the idea of whether Shakespeare has any lost pieces, any lost plays. And the answer is surprisingly yes. We're jumping ahead a bit in our narrative, but 
After Shakespeare's death, two of his collaborators gathered up all of his plays into the first folio, published in 1623, which collected all of his written works. This is easily one of the most influential books ever written, up there with the Bible. Indeed, all of Shakespeare's works have been published into every major world language. And though some apocryphal sources, and through some apocryphal sources, it appears there may be at least two lost plays of Shakespeare, Love's Labor One and Cardinio. The former makes a brief mention in an excerpt pamphlet and may just be an alternative title for Love's Labor Lost, which was one of his plays, or it could be a sequel to Love's Labor's Lost. But as it is a lost play with no surviving text, we can't be sure. The latter, Cardino, is referenced by the later 18th century playwright Louis Theobald, who claimed that his play Double Falsehood is based on manuscripts from a lost Shakespearean play that Shakespeare wrote with fellow collaborator John Fletcher. Professor Gary Taylor of Florida spent 20 years analyzing the text using computer programs, and it appears that part of the text may have indeed been written by Shakespeare. Double Falsehood was performed in April 2012, though whether or not it is a true lost play of Shakespeare, well, that remains to be seen. However, it's worth noting that Shakespeare made many collaborations throughout his lifetime as well. I think this is where we gain some confusion as to the nature of Shakespeare's authenticity. For decades, people from all walks of life have argued that Shakespeare was a fraud who didn't actually write his own plays. I mean, how could the son of a glove maker be so well informed? Oh, can you guys hear that fire truck? <laughs> ah, yeah, I live right next to <laughs> I live right next to a fire station down there. So every once in a while, you'll hear the. Sirens just blaring, blasting in the middle of the night. Anyways, Godspeed, you fireman. I hope you're doing good. Actually, it's raining today, so... Yeah, you know, I'm just going to keep moving on. <clears throat> How could the son of a glove maker be so well-informed as to the machinations of foreign kingdoms from history? It, it seems wherever you go, there's some argument as to whether Shakespeare truly wrote his own plays. The truth, however, is that he probably did write every single one of his own plays. You know, I could, you know, present the evidence as such, or I could just be more direct. And, you know, there's been a lot of argument about this. It's an, it's a fun conspiracy theory, but, and so I'm just gonna lay it to you guys straight. <clears throat> guys, he worked in a fast-paced environment and loved his job. And when you combine those two things, it's hard not to accomplish a lot. Now, coming back to where we were in the story, Robert Greene made that Tiger's Heart critique in 1594, and by then, Shakespeare's plays were being routinely performed. Shakespeare was employed with maybe the most famous theater company of the time, maybe of all time, the Lord Chamberlain's Men. These guys were the absolute best of the best, and Shakespeare routinely acted alongside them in his own works. There's a lot to uncover about life, about his life during this time, and or life during this time, and that includes the nature of the theater-going experience, but unfortunately, we don't have time to go over it. And I've said something to this effect in the previous lessons, and I'm beginning to kick myself in the shins for saying it so often, but it's true. The Elizabethan era is a very well-studied era of history, and it's full of fascinating stuff and 
oh, I love it, but I just don't feel like starting another podcast devoted entirely to its study when there are many other podcasters who are already doing just that. Shakespeare remains big business. Although I will mention a kind of nifty, nifty fact I heard the other day that the reason Shakespeare's plays were written in five acts, yes, his plays were written in five acts, is because that's how long the candles would last before they needed to be changed. Hmm. I don't know, I just think that's kind of cool. Must have been good business for the candle makers back then. Anyways, speaking of good business, once he became famous, Shakespeare also became rich. In 1599, the Lord Chamberlain's men built the infamous Globe Theatre. Now, if you're a dumb punk from NorCal like me, You've probably seen pictures of the Globe Theatre in modern London, that neat-looking circular building, and always thought that was still somehow the original theatre. Not so. The original Globe Theatre, which I read could fit as many as 3,000 people, burned in a fire in 1613, only then to rebuilt the, be rebuilt the following year. Yay! Only for it to be demolished in 1644. Boo. And so the modern building you'll see in London was actually built in 1997. Yay! Although lately it's been facing threats of closure due to the COVID situation. Boo. Just boo. Although it says on their website that they're currently doing tours, so I guess their situation has improved. The modern Globe Theatre in London today is supposedly historically accurate to the fact, though it can't hold as many as 3,000 people, though it can still hold a uh, a, a large number of people, and it, it also comes with modern safety standard um, conveniences. So, so very interesting, and I hope that building keeps keeps going. I'm sure it will. <laughs> it's unclear if Queen Elizabeth I and Shakespeare ever really met. Legend holds that the Queen once saw Henry the Fourth, Henry the Fourth, Part One where she fell in so much love with the fat knight character of Falstaff, she requested from Shakespeare that he write a play where Falstaff falls in love. Aww. The result of this purported incident was The Merry Wives of Windsor, one of Shakespeare's lesser-known and lesser-held plays. Well, what we do know is that Elizabeth was a huge patron of the arts, and her endorsement helped protect the legacy of Shakespeare from the machinations of the Puritans. She died in 1603. Immediately following this was the union of the English and Scottish crowns and the placement of King James I as the new king of the English monarchy. Following this, Shakespeare's theatre company, the Lord Chamberlain's Men, was then retitled as the King's Men. Despite welcoming the king with King James I with Macbeth, a play that is uh, critical of the Scottish monarchy, I suppose, James I appears to have also been an enthusiast of the theatre as well. So, all's the merrier. Following this surge of wealth and prestige, Shakespeare then quickly went and bought the second largest house in Stratford-upon-Avon, New Place. Indeed, he was still moving back and forth between his rural home and the big city. In his later years, Shakespeare would retire from theater and live there permanently. Um, Stratford-upon-Avon, in terms of the tourism industry there, is you can go visit the Shakespeare's home, you can go visit New Place. So it's it's just so interesting that this history is still relatively, you know, apparent and touchable. Anyways, what was probably his last play, The Two Noble Kinsmen, was finished somewhere between 1613 through 1614. 
Shakespeare died on the 23rd of April, 1616, at the age of 15, uh, 52. We are unsure of the exact cause of his death. A month beforehand, Shakespeare wrote his will, wherein he describes himself as being in perfect health. He also, at the end of his will, says that he would leave Anne Hathaway his second best bet, the exact meaning of which is unclear. He was buried in the church where he was baptized, Holy Trinity Church in Stratford-upon-Avon. Later, he would be joined by Anne Hathaway. Despite being survived by two daughters, Susanna and Judith Shakespeare, Shakespeare's lineage would end with his grandchildren. Thomas Nash, the husband of his granddaughter, Judith, I believe, is also buried next to him. On the epitaph carved on his stone grave is a nice, creepy little rhyme. <clears throat> Good friend, for Jesus' sake, forbear to dig the dust enclosed here. Blessed be the man that spares these stones, and cursed be he that moves my bones. Ooh, spooky. And apparently, when the church was remodeled in 2008, the builders made sure not to move Shakespeare's bones for fear of this curse. To recount all of Shakespeare's legacy would be absolutely impossible. What do you want me to say? He's William Shakespeare. His plays are still being performed and adapted all over the world, and multiple movies have been made of his many, many works. I will say, though, that as a proud 90s kid... Well, the 90s had an interesting infatuation with Shakespeare, that and swing music as well. Yes, really. Well, also just good music. Of course, you have Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet, which is a terrible movie. Although I remember trying to watch that movie when I was like five years old and or something like that. Six, seven, and just way too young to understand anything about Shakespeare other than that it was Romeo and Juliet, which I did somehow know. I just remember it being like super violent and super hardcore. And then you go back and watch that movie and you're just like, man, this is really goofy and it's really schizophrenic. So yeah, not a Baz Luhrmann fan. Then you have 10 Things I Hate About You based on the Taming of the Shrew. I have a special fondness of Ethan Hawke's Hamlet's. All that said, the 90s Shakespeare craze culminated in probably the most famous direct portrayal of the Bard himself with 1998's Shakespeare in Love. Now look, Shakespeare in Love rightly gets hated on due to it winning the Best Picture Oscar over Saving Private Ryan. The fact that Harvey Weinstein might have had something to do with that doesn't really help. But for what's worth, Shakespeare in Love is still a very good movie. But if you aren't interested in watching the movie, you could, hmm, I don't know, play William Shakespeare in D&D. Okay, so quick little uh, extra mid-episode uh, correction here. So the other man buried next to Shakespeare was Thomas Nash, who was the first husband of his granddaughter, Elizabeth Barnard, who was the daughter of his first daughter, Susanna Shakespeare. And once again, neither... She had no surviving children. Shakespeare's line ends with his grandchildren. So there's no living Shakespeare family, apparently. At least in regards to 
our William Shakespeare, the bard of our episode. So, yep, quick little mid-correction there. Sometimes these things happen. It is my love. Rich, rich, So, since we don't know too much about the man in question, our goal for this build is to make a bard where we cover as many different feats from Shakespeare's plays as we possibly can. And so, right off the bat, I have to say that if there are any people who are Shakespeare professors out there listening to this and who are also D&D enthusiasts, please feel free to send me all of your hate and vitriol because you could most assuredly be able to be able to build a better Shakespeare build than I can. But guys, I'm going to do my best. But first, what sort of feats and spells are we going to be looking for? Well, I took a precursory glance over the many, many plays of Shakespeare and identified the following, I'm going to call them thematic abilities. <clears throat> From Julius Caesar and Hamlet, the ability to communicate with ghosts. Hamlet talks with the ghost of his father and the ghost of Julius Caesar makes a cameo appearance in the play of Julius Caesar. That's where we get the same by Caesar's ghost, or however it goes. From Romeo and Juliet and A Midsummer's Night Dream, the usage of potions. So Romeo and Juliet both die from what's poison, I guess? Yeah. And in A Midsummer's Night Dream, they take a potion that makes them fall in love. From A Midsummer's Night Dream and The Tempest, Fey Magic. The, I, I'm a little unclear about the Tempest. I, I, it's one that I'm wanting to learn more about, but man, the character of Prospero seems like he would be, make a pretty, like, good D&D character in and of himself. So maybe I can, uh, make that sometime once with a little bit more analysis. <laughs> From the Comedy of Errors, As You Like It, and Hamlet, the ability to switch identities. The Comedy of Errors, I think, is the one with the two twins who go back and forth. The two sets of twins, which is interesting. Hamlet, the his friends take on the role of actors within the play. From The Tempest, Richard II and Othello, weather control. In all of these, there's a storm of some kind that, well, at least for The Tempest and Othello, Causes a boat to collapse at sea. I think the same thing happens in Richard II. It's just weather control. From Julius Caesar and Macbeth, the ability to foretell the future. Beware the Ides of March. The trees shall come walking to the castle. From Macbeth, the ability to cast illusions. Is this a dagger I see before me? From Pericles, Prince of Tyre. So this is a bit of a weird one, since this is one of Shakespeare's lesser-known works. Indeed, it was a collaboration piece and wasn't included in the first folio. However, the gist of the play is that the king of Antioch has set up a riddle that will kill anyone who fails to answer it. We can twist this into the chaos spell. spell. From A Winter's Tale, Animal Control, or some variation of it. 
after the scene in which a bear comes from offstage and eats King Leontes. Yes, really, this is something that happens in A Winter's Tale. It literally says, from stage right, bear comes and chases the king away and apparently just eats him offstage, so yeah. On top of this, it should be noted that there are many, many sword fights from Shakespeare's plays, so we'll try to make sure he has some knowledge of sword play. Alright, so level 1. Put 15 in charisma, duh. 14 for intelligence, you are famous for your intellect and wit. 13 for wisdom, you have knowledge of how people perform and act. 12 for dexterity, some would argue that this is a bit low for a bard, but Shakespeare is more famous for his mind than any physical traits. 10 for constitution, it's low, but we shouldn't dump it. And 8 for strength. Again, you are strong in character, not biceps. We're going to take the entertainer background, naturally. That allows us to pick up proficiency with acrobatics and performance, and we also get the by popular demand feature. Essentially, you are welcome at any entertainment venue where you can have free lodging as long as you are willing to perform. Oh, and you get recognized on the street as a bit of a local celebrity. Feel free to sign as many autographs as you want. We are going to be a variant human, so put one extra point in charisma and one in wisdom. For the bonus feat, we're going to take the actor feat. Wow, it's as if this stuff writes itself. The actor feat does a bunch of little things. You get to put an extra point in charisma, taking it to 17. You have advantage on deception and performance checks when you try to pass yourself off as another person. And you gain the ability to mimic another person or creature, though a successful wisdom check can see through the disguise. As a level 1 bard, you can choose any three skill proficiencies that you want. Take deception, history, and insight. For cantrips, take vicious mockery, which will allow you to insult a blundering nitwit and punish them with psychic damage. Also, is this a dagger I see before me? Nah, it's just the minor illusion cantrip, which will allow you to trick drunk Scottish idiots. For your first level spells, take Charm Person, Disguise Self, and Command. Already with the extra benefit from the actor feat and by popular demand feature, you can pretty much fool anyone and get yourself to, into any major social gathering. Finally, take Fairy Fire, which will allow you to highlight enemies and objects in a dreamy light for damage. And you get Bardic Inspiration to inspire your teammates to do better. Oh, and I guess for your bonus instrument, take a lute or flute, you son of a newt. At level 2, we get Jack of All Traits, letting us add half of our proficiency bonus to any role that doesn't normally get our proficiency. Only okay at the moment, it gets pretty useful at the end of the build. You also get Song of Rest. During a short rest where one of your party members uses a hit die to regain health, you can then give them an extra 1d6 to add to their health. For your spell this level, take Tasha's Hideous Laughter which causes those with weak wisdom to fall into laughing fits, paralyzing them. They're either laughing at your sharp wit, or maybe they saw DiCaprio try to act. At level 3, we get Expertise, allowing us to choose two of our skills where any ability that uses them gets double the proficiency bonus. Take Performance and Deception, but more importantly, we get to choose what Bard College we went to. Which one did old Billy Shakes go to? Why the College of Eloquence, my dear Why? Ooh, wait, wait, wrong British icon. As a member of the College of Eloquence, you get Silver Tongue, meaning that every time you make a Persuasion or Deception check, any roll you get that is a 9 or lower automatically becomes a 10. You also get Unsettling Words. Whenever an enemy makes a saving throw against you, with a roll of your Bardic Inspiration die, you can actually subtract from their overall score. Nice. As for this level spell, take Suggestion, allowing you to 
subtly influence a creature to perform a specific action that doesn't immediately endanger their life. If you or your teammates attack the creature, the effect ends. Level 4, what's a bore of a chore? Nah, not true, just not the score. At level 4, we can take a feat, and I'm going to say, take the Poisoner feat. Getting rid of Leo aside, the Poisoner feat is actually more nifty than it might sound at first. This, this feat was actually a bit of a surprise for me, I kind of underestimated it. We get proficiency with the Poisoner's kit, resistance to poison damage, we can kill our own weapons and poison, and we can make our own poisons when the time calls for it. Hey, isn't that all fun? We get another, so that takes care of one of our goals, the ability to make potions, mostly. We get another cantrip at this level. Take True Strike as an extra little aid to our combat abilities. For our spell this level, choose Detect Thoughts, which will allow us to observe the surface level thoughts of a targeted creature. Now, you can truly know what your actors actually think of you. Level 5, Time to Jive. At level 5, your Bardic Inspiration moves up to a D8, and you get Font of Inspiration, which allows you to regain your Bardic Inspiration ability after you finish a short or long rest. For your spell this level, take Bestow Curse. Beware the Ides of March, and all that. Hey, it's March right now. Level 6, Pick Up Sticks. You get the Counter Charm ability. With the power of one of your jaunty little tunes, you can help keep you and your fellow Lord Chamberlain's men from falling to mind-influencing magic. You also get two more of your Bard College features. You get Unfailing Inspiration. When one of your friends rolls a Bardic Inspiration die and that roll fails, they can still keep that die. You also get Universal Speech. As an action, you can choose a number of creatures equal to your Charisma modifier, and for an hour they can understand you, though you can only use it again after you finish a long rest. Considering how hard it is for modern audiences to understand your works and words, this is actually pretty useful. For your spell, take Clairvoyance as another way to help look into the future. Next is level 7, which is super exciting and amazing. Nah, just kidding, you don't get anything. You do get to take another spell though. Take Phantasmal Killer, allowing you to send a young Danish prince some super happy dreams. Level 8, keep your back straight. You know, just in general, everyone needs to focus on their posture. Anyways, we get to take another feat at this level. Choose the Fate Touched feat to really make sure we are in line with plays like Midsummer and Tempest. We get to increase our charisma by one point, taking it to 18. We also get Misty Step and can choose one other spell from either the Divination or Enchantment School of Magic. Go ahead and take Detect Magic. Seems a little random, but this will allow you to keep tabs on your audience and make sure they aren't getting ready to cast fireballs at the actors. It's quite a step up from tomatoes and cabbages. Also, you can cast either of these spells without wasting a spell slot, though you will have to finish a long rest before you can do this again. As for our spell this level, take the Charm Monster spell. This is the spell we'll take to, to, to direct our bear actor to come from stage right. Man, that's just still hilarious to me. Just, just... Stage right, bear. <laughs> We're now at level 9. At level 9, our Song of Rest increases to a D8, which is nice. We also get our first 5th level spell, and here we're going to take our Gale spell. This spell allows us to choose a creature that must understand us. We give it a command, short of anything suicidal, and anytime it tries to go against the Gaos, it'll take 5d10 psychic damage. It's not a 1 for 1, but this knocks out the goal we had from Tyre, 
the Prince of Pericles. Level 10, we're halfway there, folks. Our bardic, our bardic inspiration increases to a D10, and we can choose two more skills to get expertise with. Take insight and history. We also get our first bit of magical secrets. We can choose two spells that are within our level and spell casting ability from any other spell casting class, which really is a testament to how versatile bards are. Through this, we'll be able to catch up on our weather effects. Take Ray of Frost and Gust of Wind. On top of that, we get another cantrip at the level. Take Thunderclap. And while, yes, all these spells can be used offensively, they can also be used to add extra special effects to our plays. See, CGI really is overrated. For spells, we'll take Dream. Either you or a creature of your choice that you know, that is on your plane of existence, but has to be something capable of sleep, so no elves. Okay, sorry, just this spell already has quite a few stipulations, but don't let it stop you, it's very good. Whoever or whatever you choose enters a deep sleep and becomes a messenger for you to deliver a message to a target of your choice in dreams. There are quite a few stipulations, but it's useful. You should also take scrying as another way to magically see what heroes or villains might be plotting, most likely in a monologue fashion. Level 11, here we go. A level 11, you get nothing again. Ah well, they can't all be soliloquies. For your spell this level though, take Hero's Feast, which allows you to create a huge feast for your party. Not just any feast, but a magic feast. It takes one hour to consume, but for 24 hours afterwards, the heroes are cured of all diseases, they get immunity to fear and poison, and they get an additional 2d10 to their max hit points. Maybe it's the Feast of Twelfth Night? Huh? huh? Man, that's what, what a fun spell. Just instant 4th of July party. Woo! <laughs> At least the dinner part. <clears throat> it's time for level 12. And actually, while we don't get any other special build, uh, special features or spells, it is time for another ability score improvement. Just put both in charisma. It's actually been too long that this wasn't capped out, but I wanted to get all the main Shakespeare abilities first. Anyways, this takes us to a capped charisma score of 20. Level 13. Our Song of Rest goes up to a d10. Okay, okay, but for our spell, let's take Mordenkainen's Magnificent Mansion. I could give an extended breakdown, but look. For all intents and purposes, you can make your very own globe theater, complete with a staff of 100 to help attend to you and your party's needs. The spell lasts for 24 hours, plenty of time to make a few performances inside. Level 14. At level 14, we learn more magical secrets. Take Fog Cloud to, well, make a fog cloud, perfect for atmosphere. You can also take Snillic Snowstorm for a bit more ice damage. You also get the special college feature, Infectious Inspiration. When one of your friends uses a previously given Bardic Inspiration die, their bonus can now spread. With this, you can really inspire your troop before the show begins! For spells, take Project Image, which is another illusion spell. Essentially, you create a magical copy of yourself, which despite a few limitations can essentially work on your behalf. It can't take any damage and can't really fight back, but at any point, you can choose to look through its senses. Perfect for even more spy missions or keeping your wife entertained while you keep putting on shows. For your next spell at this level, take Resurrection, which is pretty much what it sounds like. Yeah, you can pretty much bring someone back to life. They can't have died from old age, can't have been dead for more than a century, and it greatly taxes you. But at least now you will really know how the historical figures you base your place on, well, how they chose how to talk, because, well, you casted them 
in your own play about them. If that's not stunt casting, I don't know what is. <laughs> now, level 15 is actually going to be pretty simple. Your bardic inspiration is now a d12, and for your new spell, take glibness. Which, I mean, you were already pretty glib, but now you're magically glib. Essentially, once activated, any check you make that uses charisma is automatically rolled as a 15. I mean, you already had amazing charisma skills and abilities, but with this, you really are going to pass any kind of check that requires your charisma. <laughs> Level 16. Alright, alright, alright! Matthew McConaughey as Hamlet, am I right? Well, young Matthew, I mean. Anyways, this is just another level where we get more ability score improvements. Put both in dexterity. It's been pretty low for a while, but this will help. Level 17. Our Song of Rest is now a d12, and we get a new level 9 spell. Ooh, let's see. Well, honestly, seeing as how you are the master of wordplay, I guess take Power Word Kill. Yeah, really, when a creature of your choice is either at or below 100 hit points, you can just instantly kill them, just, just like that. Seeing as how you invented the word anchovy, I guess this actually works. Level 18. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, we get more magical secrets. Take lightning bolt, lightning bolt to just straight up go Palpatine on some fool. And hey, remember at the start of this episode when I promised that we would grant Shakespeare some combat abilities and you didn't believe me? Well, here's where I fulfill my promise. Take Tensor's Transformation. Easily one of the dumbest spells in the entire game, and that's saying a lot. It allows a magic user to basically become a martial character without any physical investment whatsoever. You get 50 temporary hit points, advantage on attack rolls, extra damage on your attacks, just all kinds of good stuff. I mean, for real, Tensors is super crazy and super useful. For more bonus spells, take Foresight, which allows you to grant a creature of your choice some limited future scene abilities. Also, take Power Word Heal, a touch spell. Whatever you... Whatever creature you choose to cast this on regains all their hit points and is cured of any negative conditions. Wait, 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 wait. If it's a touch spell, if it's a touch spell, why is it called Power Word Heal? Level 19 is our final level for our ability score improvements. Well, let's put them both into con. When retroactively applied, this allows the PC to regain a number of hit points equal to their current level. Since we're putting both in... Constitution. Well, what's 19 times 2? Check it. We get a great and needed extra 38 points of health. Sick. Wait, not sick. We're healthy now. Our capstone is going to be level 20 of Bard for superior inspiration. At the start of combat, when we roll initiative, and we currently have no usages of Bardic inspiration, we regain 1. Um, yay, barely? Now that we're done with Billy the Bard, let's break him down. Well, since he's our first bard, it's not like we have too much to compare to. Still, bards are the masters of versatility, and Shakespeare is no exception. He's an excellent team player, capable of healing and inspiring his allies. Thanks to Tensors, we can be a great fighter when we need to be. And all of our weather spells give us all kinds of creative effects, and we're a good spy. Also, and stick with me on this, but the whole time I was working on this build, I couldn't get out of my head how awesome this... Shakespeare build would be in an actual theater, either as a spy trying to influence or sway someone in the audience, or as a boss for the PCs to somehow fight without alerting the audience to their intentions. 
you know, that would actually be a pretty crazy and memorable encounter. So, yeah, there's a certain level of arena dominance associated with this build. As far as weaknesses go, and maybe I just did something wrong, but he's surprisingly not very skilled as a bard. Don't get me wrong, he still has expertise and is crazy talented in social, social situations, but he may not excel in other situations in the way he needs to. Also, he has zero in the way of polymorph spells. For those who don't know, polymorph spells allow the caster or targeted creature or item to become a creature of just about any kind. As you can imagine, being able to turn yourself into a dragon is a powerful and useful ability, and we have no investment in any polymorph magic. It just, I couldn't find a story where it really fits in with the character. <laughs> and of course, all of those spells require all kinds of concentration checks, so Billy will have to be careful for which he chooses at any given moment, especially if you plan on casting tensors. But overall, I think this is a great build for all kinds of situations, and I'm mostly happy with it. In terms of role-playing William, well, I think this one is mostly up to you. He's certainly passionate about the theater and being entertaining, but that might be his only true love. Since he is mostly all about the theater he runs, I don't really see him as the question sort being a bit of a local figure instead. That said, if something challenges the sanctity of his theater or the safety of his actors, I could see him with his ability to gather information and change fate, as it were, as quite the formidable opponent. For role-play in the setting, well, the theater could be the super lavish and crazy part of town, but then the rest of the city might be very dirty and grungy. This could lead to a certain level of disdain from the rest of the populace. On the flip side, the theater might be the sole bright spot in an otherwise dark world. Playing up this imbalance could lead to some interesting plot points. And do I even need to delve into the campaign potential that comes straight up from adapting Shakespeare's plays into your D&D campaign? Seriously, you could adapt almost any of them, turning them into an entire epic unto themselves. For instance, what if in your D&D adaptation of Macbeth, the trees that approached the castle were just straight up treants? How hilarious would that be? <laughs> I'm laughing just thinking about it. Or you could have a whole world where all the plays are interacting with each other in a shared universe. Yeah, you know, okay, I'm going to stop right there so that my million dollar ideas don't get stolen. Finally, for a song to go with your conceptualization of William Shakespeare. Hmm. Okay, okay. so I'm going to go with My Name is Carnival by Jackson C. Frank. It's not necessarily the best fit for the Shakespeare build, I know, but it's moody, it's poetic, and it's kind of stuck in my head at the moment, and um, there it is, that's kind of it. Alright, the riddle for our next build. <clears throat> Did you take the roads to the hospitaler? Did you take the valet or grandmaster? Special thanks to... BT Newberg and Rachel Westhoff for the fantastic local art. Go check out their shows. Dead Ideas and The History of Sex, they are both fantastic. If you have any questions, send them to the way of my email address at punkrockajpodcasts at gmail.com. And remember, the die is mightier than the sword.